Welcome to the PCTR Podcast. I'm Robbie Itterberg, Senior Pastor. I want to thank you for listening today. We hope that you hear from God and that this podcast encourages you in your faith journey. You can connect with us on social at facebook.com slash PCTRNJ or our Instagram handle, PCTRNJ. Or you can find more information or resources at PCTR.org. Have a great day. Peace. Good evening. Good evening. Thank you. If we haven't had the chance to meet, I'm Robbie Itterberg. I'm the other pastor here. And <clears throat> excuse me, as we begin this evening, I'm wondering if you had to put together a team that could change the world, who would you choose? I was thinking about this question this week as I was thinking about the end of the school year and graduations coming and yearbooks that are coming and thought about those sections in yearbooks which have all the superlatives, right? The, you know, the most likely to, you know, all those different categories, most likely to succeed, of course, or I just happened to start looking up some others, most likely to drop their phone in the toilet. Could be there or most likely to survive the Hunger Games or most likely to make it on Broadway or to become president or to make millions or to be a professional athlete to win a Nobel Prize, right? You could just keep going and going and going. And of course, the the flip side of that is also possible, isn't it? The least likely to whatever it is. And, And, you know, those often come about through some sort of class vote system, you know, which can get kind of ugly, but in that voting, you're essentially choosing your team for whatever that particular task is. And, and I can't remember, actually, and I didn't uh, go looking for my yearbook, which I think I have probably buried somewhere, but I didn't go looking to see if I was chosen for any of these superlatives. I just can't remember. But if you were trying to put together a team that was going to change the world, who would be on your list? And on what basis do you make those choices? This is exactly what Jesus did. And we're going to look at this as we jump into a new sermon series that we're beginning tonight. And it's called Just Like Us. And we're going to move into Mark chapter 3. And we're going to see how Jesus began this crazy mission to change the world. And so, if you want, you can follow along on the screen. This is Mark chapter 3, and we'll start in verse 13. Jesus went up on a mountainside and called to him those he wanted, and they came to him. He appointed 12 that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and have authority to drive out demons. These are the 12 he appointed, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John, To them he gave the name Boanerges, which means sons of thunder. Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. And that's it for this evening. Let's pray as we move into this word together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this space that you've given us to gather We thank you for the space that's been carved out in the course of our day and the week to be in your presence with each other. Father, in this moment, ask that you would send your spirit to move among us, to sharpen our hearing, to enlighten our thinking. 
and Lord, to continue the good work of transforming our heart and our soul. It's in the name of Jesus that we ask all of these things. Amen. So as we jump into this passage, this short passage in Mark chapter 3, just a little bit of background. Right? Jesus has been in his public ministry now for maybe a year and a half. And in the course of this time, lots of people have been following Jesus for lots of reasons. But let's get honest, the primary reasons are because he's healing all sorts of people. And who wouldn't want to be healed or want one of their loved ones to get healed? And word spreads like wildfire when somebody starts doing miraculous things. And so crowds of people were constantly gathering around Jesus to receive healing. And in the course of that, also to hear what he had to say. And out of these crowds started to come a group of people who were called disciples. Really, they were following him more consistently. They probably, even some of them, had given up their regular work so that they could follow Jesus around, so that they could learn more deeply what it was that he was all about. And now, in the passage that we read today, he's going to do something different. See, we typically, if I say the word disciple, you might think of the 12 that he names in this particular passage. But there were already disciples around Jesus before this moment when he calls these 12 for a truly unique thing. See, he is calling 12 men to him. Now, that number 12 is really significant in the history of God's people, and it would have been very, very significant for those who heard Jesus in this moment. 12 refers back specifically to the 12 tribes of Israel, which is the chosen people of God, right? That he had taken these 12 sons of Jacob. If you go back to the book of Genesis and you can read the origin story here, he takes these, basically the 12 sons, and each of those sons becomes the head of one of the tribes of the nation of Israel that God says, they will be my people, I will be their God. He had rescued them from Egypt, claiming them to himself to demonstrate to the world what does life under God's rule look like. Now, over the course of years and years, if you have followed the story, you know that the 12 tribes of Israel were faithless much of the time. Actually, it was a hot and cold relationship with God, which I think a lot of us actually can relate to pretty well. Some days, some years, some seasons, they were on fire, passionate, loyal, faithful, and other seasons, they were in total rebellion, disarray, chaos, and God ultimately said enough. And he sent them into exile. In other words, he uprooted them from the land he had given them, really as as a disciplinary act. And anybody who has kids or who has worked with kids knows that Yeah, it may be harsh, but it's also for their good, right? And so God was trying to discipline his people. He was disciplining his people. But in the course of that exile, they never found restoration completely. 
God brought them back into the land, but they were always lacking and they were always looking ahead to another day when God was going to restore things to the way that they were actually even better than before. And so they were longing for this. They were longing for it so much when Jesus came, they were longing to put off the, the, uh, the oppression of the Roman Empire. They were longing to put off right there, having to be subservient to others. They were looking for independence. They were looking for prosperity. They were looking for security. They were looking for home. And here comes Jesus. And he goes onto a mountainside. And he, out of this group of disciples who are following him, he calls 12 men. It's like in this moment, he's saying, the restoration is beginning. Home is about to happen. Security is coming. And they probably would have picked up on the significance of this number, that Jesus was making an incredible claim with these men. And he does it on a mountainside, which, I don't know, I grew up in the mountains of Colorado, and so I have this, like, love and affection for mountains, and I think about the beauty of it and the hiking and the opportunities in it. But the, my experience of the mountains were not like the mountains in this region of Israel. People didn't just go out for, like, day hikes. It wasn't like, hey, this sounds like fun. Let's go climb in the mountains. This was rugged. It was harsh. It was hostile. Really, the ones that went out into the mountains were the ones that were typically plotting something and they needed a place of secret to do their plotting. And so Jesus is going into the mountains. It's kind of like he's plotting something new, something profound, something that the people certainly around Jesus, the religious leaders of the day, would have probably recognized as somewhat of a revolution. And Jesus has been stirring the pot already. He's been bucking some of their trends and certainly their power and their authority. And he's gotten to a point where he knows that they want to get rid of him. And, and they're committed at this point. And so he realizes that his time on earth is going to run out. And so he shifts his focus at this moment with these men, and he calls these 12 because what he's doing is he's going to prepare for what's going to happen after his death that he knows is coming, his resurrection that he knows is coming his ascension into heaven. In other words, when he's no longer walking around on earth as he is in this moment, he's getting ready for what's going to happen in that day. And so he strategically calls these 12 men to himself. Now, these 12 men, <laughs> if you go through this list of guys, these are really unlikely guys to be called to the, uh, uh, a man of Jesus' stature. Uh, a rabbi, but also a miracle worker, someone that had lots of attention from the people. Like these guys, there was not a lot to them. You, know, you got two for sure, maybe four that are fishermen. I mean, this, sure, it's a noble trade and they could make 
a living at it, but there was nothing special about these guys. They weren't educated. You know, they, they were fishermen. And maybe not even that great at it because Jesus at one point when he's interacting with Peter along the way, they were fishing all night long. They get nothing and Jesus tells them to go out and throw their nets out again on the other side of the boat and they catch a whole lot of fish. Now, it's probably more about Jesus' miracle than their you know, being inept at fishing, but who knows? But you've got some fishermen in this group. You've got one that's labeled a zealot, which means he's like ready to fight. And so he's probably kind of a meathead and probably just interested in getting, doing whatever it takes to throw off the shackles of the, the Roman Empire. So he's ready, to, he's ready to throw down at any given moment. He's probably a little bit of a hothead. You've got another guy who's Matthew, who's a tax collector, who, which means he's basically a sellout to the Roman Empire. And now they're being called together to come hang out for a good while together, right? Like, this, this list does not include one religious leader. Not one. Isn't that weird? Like, there was not one that was a Pharisee or a Sadducee or a scribe or, like, none. And I think if we're honest about it, that's pretty weird to us. Because when we step back, if we start to really honestly think about things, way deep down in us, somewhere along the line, many of us started to believe this, this idea that God wants the people who are shiny and have their life put together. Like those, those are the ones that God is proud of. Those are the ones that God wants the relationship with. Those are the ones that God uses. Those are the ones that are special because they have their life put together. And so we think that essentially the religious leaders are the ones that have God's favor. Well, Jesus from this moment is making it very clear that that's not how God works. He wasn't choosing those that seemed to have their life put together. And man, so many of those folks, by the way, that you think have their life put together, don't peel back the layers too far because you're going to find out that they're a mess just like the rest of us. We've all got our stuff. Some, some have our stuff a little more out in the open for everybody to see, but we've all got our stuff. And God doesn't choose people based on their worthiness the way that we think he does. He chooses these ordinary guys. Matter of fact, 1 Corinthians put it this way. Paul, in our reading that we had earlier, said, Hey, remember where you were at when you were called. Not many of you were wise. Not many of you were influential. Not many of you were of a noble birth. Right? He said, you all were just ordinary folks. And this is God's pattern. Throughout history, throughout scripture, God does not seem to call people and choose for his team the people that we think he should choose. Or certainly doesn't use the standards that we would use to choose. Like, for instance, if you were choosing one, someone that had to go give speeches before the most powerful head of state, would you choose someone who stutters? God did. That was Moses. That was Moses' complaint to God. He's like, 
don't you understand that I stutter? Like that was his excuse. He's like, hey, I can get out of this. I know because I know how this works. Oh, I have to give speeches? Sorry, I stutter, God. I guess I'm disqualified. Yeah, no, that's not the way it works because God doesn't choose based on our qualification or his qualification. It was based on his independent choice. And so he chose Moses. He chose David, who was the youngest of these seven sons. He wasn't apparently that tall. He didn't fit in Saul's armor. Maybe he was still a young man. But there wasn't a whole lot about him that commanded this respect of the king. Over and over again, throughout the scripture, God chooses ordinary folks for incredible things. And so here Jesus is following the same pattern. He calls them. He chooses them. And man, that's just another thing for us to grab onto. He chooses us. We don't choose him. Or at least we don't choose him first. God chooses us. Chose me way before I thought about choosing him. Just choosing him, I couldn't even wrap my head around what that would really even look like. And when I started to understand what that would look like, man, I realized that choosing him meant choosing not other things and not other ways of living. And yet he had already chosen me. He had already chosen in Christ. He had called us which is what Jesus does in this passage. He says, he called them to be with him. He he called them to be with him. Like that was the big plan. That's the purpose, to be with him. To be with Jesus is not just to be like in proximity, to be near Jesus. To be with Jesus was more about their identity, right? It, It was to be with someone, to be with him, was to be on his team, to be identified with him. As a matter of fact, this played out very clearly later on when Jesus was arrested, and on that night, he's in the high priest's house, and one of his many, you know, bum trials that's happening as they're bringing false witnesses, but Peter, one of these 12, was following along, and he's there in the courtyard, and some people recognize him, and their question for him is, hey, weren't you with him? In other words, don't you identify with him? Don't you see the world the way he sees it? Don't you actually belong with him? To be with him meant that they were going to identify with him, with his cause, with his purpose, but it also, to be with someone also means a unique kind of access, doesn't it? Like it meant particularly access to a relationship with God. Like I, I know a few years ago I had the opportunity to go play golf at the TPC Piper Glen, which TPC is the the Tour Players Championship course at Piper Glen in the Charlotte area. Now, this is a private course. I could not just walk up on my own, but I had the honor of being the guest of my brother-in-law who was a member at a course that, so he had rights to go play there. And because of his status, I was allowed access to go play. 
Because of Jesus' status, the disciples, these 12 men, are going to have access to God. And in the same way, because of Jesus' status as God in the flesh, mediating, repairing our relationship with God, you too can have access and I can have access with God. To be with Jesus is to be, have access to be with God. And so these 12 have this unique opportunity. We have this unique opportunity to be with him. You know, because when you walk through the door and you don't have any credentials of your own, but the one you're with, I'm with him. Right? It gives us access. To be with him is about our loyalty, our devotion. Right? It's... I'm with him as opposed to with someone else. I'm on his team as opposed to another team. And one of, that's, this is one of the signs that comes out most clearly in our practice of baptism, particularly if you were with us in the last, a couple weeks ago, we baptized uh, in, in our 1030 service, we, we baptized uh, a man, David, And he was coming to his baptism because he wanted to say yes to Jesus. He wanted to identify his life with Jesus. He was saying, yes, Jesus already claimed me, called me, pursued me. He chose me first, but now I want to choose him. I want to be with him. I want my life to identify with his purpose, with who he is, with his calling. See, our baptism is a sign of this new identity in him. And even if you were baptized when you were a tiny baby, that was a sign of God choosing you. And as we remember our baptism, every time you hear about it, every time you see it, it's an invitation to remember his claim, his calling on you, and your opportunity to renew your yes, to choose him back. To choose to identify your life with him. To be with him was to share life with him and to learn with him along the way. Jesus didn't have like a curriculum that he sat down with them and, you know, had them work through the workbook and the sheets and, you know, okay, we're on chapter two today, everybody, which is somewhat how we approach at times our growth in faith. Jesus's curriculum was life. They shared these moments together. For 18 months, they shared life together. They traveled together, they slept together, they ate together, they learned together. Yes, he taught them, they reflected, he sent them out, they failed, they came back. All these things were a part of the the flow of sharing life together. That's to be with Jesus is to share life with him every moment. And it's, here's the problem with sharing life with Jesus though. It means you're sharing life with other people. And sometimes other people are obnoxious, <laughs> aren't they? Like, don't look around, just we can agree. We can just agree. Sometimes people are obnoxious. And this, is, this was the reality for the disciples. Right? This mix of ordinary guys didn't see eye to eye on all things. They had had some backgrounds and some baggage and some loyalties that they needed to unload. They they needed to get rid of some stuff. And and along the way, they were butting heads with one another. 
right? They were ordinary guys, but they were also, they were also extra. Do you know that, that adjective, extra? I mean, I, I really probably shouldn't try to use words that have been created in the last you know, 10 years because I'm not cool enough, but it's a word that comes up regularly and, and it's used like this. It, it's excessive, dramatic behavior. It's over the top, right? It's to behave consistently in a way that, that's like unnecessary or inappropriate. It's, it's extra. And you know some people like that, right? And these guys were like that. They were extra. We see it even in this little passage that we read. Two of them, Jesus gives the name Sons of Thunder. Now, if that's not over the top and dramatic, I don't know what it is, right? We see another in this list that we're told right from the very beginning, Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Huh. Well, that's interesting. We go on in the story and they fight and they bicker and they argue. And when Jesus is ultimately arrested, they scatter. These guys don't have their life put together. They're a mess. And yet Jesus knows they're a mess and calls them to be with him and to be with one another. It's the rest of what Paul was talking about in 1 Corinthians 1 that we read earlier that God chooses the foolish things to shame the wise. These guys were fools. When they thought they were wise, they showed how foolish they were. Man, isn't that the case for us? But that God chooses the weak things to shame the strong. God chooses the lowly and despised things, the things that are not, to nullify the things that are. In other words, the categories that we think matter the most, God doesn't care about at all. See, it was all, ultimately, Paul says, so that no one may boast before God. Instead, their boast, our boast, would only be in the Lord. See, because when we boast about things, it's because, well, we can take some credit. We can feel pretty good about it, right? Whatever it is. But when it comes to our relationship with God, this claim and calling on our lives, we have no space for boasting. None. If Jesus is the one that initiates the relationship and chooses, if Jesus is the one who gives access to God, ultimately through his sacrificial death on the cross, if Jesus is ultimately the one who provides anything that resembles wisdom and strength and honor, if Jesus is the one by his Holy Spirit that provides the gifts through which we can do anything effective, if Jesus' spirit is the one who allows anything in our lives to be fruitful, where along the way do we have any room to boast? We don't. We don't. And it also means that we have no space to boast for those who aren't in relationship with Jesus either. See, sometimes as disciples, we feel pretty good about our privileged position. 
And then we can look out at a world of people who are making a mess of their life or making a mess of our lives because of their bad choices. And we can start to feel a little bit better about ourselves because we're not them. And in the process, revealing our self-righteousness, revealing actually that we think that we have something to boast about, that we're better than they are rather than embracing the reality of the humility of the ordinary guys who have no room for boast. And so we have no room for boast and we are humbled by that, but man, we have so much to rejoice in. Because if I didn't do any of it to merit it, it means it can't be taken away from me either. Because Jesus did it all. Jesus chooses me. He chooses you. Jesus laid his life down. Nobody took it away from him. Jesus conquered death, conquered sin, conquered evil. Jesus is ultimately our hope, and that cannot be taken away from you if it wasn't yours that you earned in the first place. And so it is his claim and his calling on your life, calling you who are ordinary and perhaps, yes, even a little bit extra at times, but calling you to do extraordinary things. See, that's what these 12 were being called to do, to go and preach, to go with the authority to cast out demons they had a new job, a new vocation, a new calling on their lives. And that was ultimately in every moment, in every way, to love God completely, to love their neighbor as themselves, to represent this new king and his kingdom. It was all-encompassing. And that's the same calling on our lives. And as they lived into this calling, they really did do extraordinary things. These same 12, right, from them, right, Jesus is arrested, they scattered. Judas, we know, takes his own life. And so out of the 11 that remain, miraculously, God changes the world. Jesus ascends into heaven. His Holy Spirit descends on these 11 and the 12th one that they replaced Judas with because they felt that 12 was really important because it was a new restoration of God's kingdom. But from those 12, 3,000 in a day came to know that they had a king and a Messiah and a hope and a Jesus who would choose them even if they didn't choose him. And from there, the message spread, the life spread, lives were changed, and ultimately within only a few hundred years, the Roman Empire was toppled, not by might and power and strength and the things and standards of the world, but by the subversive love, selfless, sacrificial love of the ordinary followers of Jesus. They turned everything upside down. And out of them came these radical ideas of loving our neighbors, the dignity of life, the hope that is found through Jesus Christ who would choose us when we are still sinners and would lay his life down for us. See, these 12 are just like us. They're ordinary, 
They're extra. But when Jesus got a hold of their life, they did extraordinary things. What are your excuses? What are my excuses? For why we can't be a part of that ongoing movement to change the world by radically loving God and radically loving our neighbor and making the hope of Jesus Christ known to those who don't know yet. Well, I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't have the answers to the questions. Well, God didn't choose those who were wise. He chose the foolish. I don't have the physical abilities. Well, he didn't choose the strong. He chooses the weak. I don't have time. I'm not a good talker. I don't have influence. Man, do you know the sin that's still present in my life? Like, if you knew that, I'm sure that would disqualify. See, Jesus chooses you to be with him, to have access through him, to have loyalty to him, to identify with him, to have his calling and his purpose on your life and to be sent by him to make him known. Friends, we're going to spend these next weeks looking at each of these 12 disciples' story because they're just like us. And to learn from them, what does it mean to respond to Jesus' claim and calling on our life? To say yes, to to choose him when he's chosen us. And to go and be sent to make him known. I hope you'll join us on this journey. Because God's choosing you to do extraordinary things. Let's pray. Heavenly Father... When we really pause it and we think about it, that you would choose us really is hard for us to wrap our minds around. That you would love us like that. That it's not about our worthiness, our goodness, but that you would choose us in Jesus Christ who calls us to be with him, to have access through him, to identify with him. Lord God, in this moment, for those of us who are still trying to approach you based on our credentials, our goodness, Lord, help us to to lay that down, to be free from that. That we can have access to you and to your love simply by trusting that Jesus has given us that access, that we'd be with him. And Lord, for all of us who have been baptized, help us to to remember our baptism where you chose us and we say yes and choose you back, Lord. Help us to choose you day in and day out in every moment to love you, to love our neighbors, to make you known. Lord, use us to do truly extraordinary things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.